today is from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 to 28, reading from the ESV. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages of, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we are in Hebrews, and we have been for seven weeks now studying the book of Hebrews. Um, beautifully read by Mildred this morning. As we are walking through this text, we are into Hebrews chapter 9. And as you read Hebrews, for us in modern-day New Jersey or wherever you're watching this, um, some of his references, some of the references in the book are very, very old, ancient Israel practices, and we may not totally be familiar with them. One of the themes of the book or themes of the letter is over and over again trying to remind the Israelites what you had before can become very romantic in, in the present. What you're presently doing is hard, and it's easier to think back to the past, but you might be romanticizing a little bit of the past. You may be thinking about it now and thinking it was so much better. You probably have some rose-colored glasses as to what it looked like in the past. I'll give you an example. I think about myself in college, and I like to think I was very cool in college, that I was cool, fast-talking, I was dressed well, I had really cool hair. Um, this is me in college. My memory of myself might be pretty different from what I actually was like. We do this. If you have any of the friends who talk about how fantastic their high school days were, what it was like when they were young, we have these views of things that maybe weren't that amazing or they were great but also had their struggles. We begin to think of them only in terms of how we can take that photo of me off now. <laughs> Sorry to think of how long to allow that to be up there. Throughout Hebrews, the author is telling his Jewish Christians that the faith of your ancestors, that you may be remembering fondly as the golden age, wasn't as golden as you think it was. As we've said multiple times in the series, what's happening in the letter is early Jewish Christians are being persecuted. They may be losing their life under physical danger and threat, or they could be losing all of their social status. Their family, their friends won't, touch, won't connect with them, come over anymore because they've left their Jewish faith. And they have an obvious solution of, I just dropped the Jesus stuff, I go back to being an Israelite, everything's going to be fine. And in that process, they're even thinking, it was pretty good, right? The ancestors had this special relationship with God, right? The tabernacle, the priests, the covenants. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, you are remembering it wrong. He's saying over and over again, it didn't work. You thought that it did? It didn't work. It was a shadow of what God is working in you now. And that as Mildred read, 
Jesus gives us the real thing. That practice from before was a shadow of it. What we have now is great and eternal. His work lasts forever. There's no doubt or cycle of shame. And he even says, we will all die. We will. We will close our eyes on this earth. But he says, but because of Christ, we will open them once and forever, not being judged by our sin, but being judged by the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. As we've studied Hebrews, you may have noticed that to understand this letter requires a certain assumed knowledge of Old Testament practices. And he's comparing the new Jesus to very specific things from Old Testament texts. And you may be like, well, how does that work? I don't have a full and robust knowledge of the atonement, how the tabernacle was laid out, and the different covenants offered throughout the Old Testament. You may not. So let me help you out a little bit. We're going to walk this through. Remember that the author is writing to Jewish Christians. And before you zone out, realize that sometimes our lack of appreciation of what was dims our joy and celebration of what is. So for us, we may not be romanticizing the tabernacle, but we just have forgotten the struggle of what it was like at all. God is always working to create beauty from chaos. He graciously, because he is a relational being, works that process through human beings, human beings who are often agents of chaos ourselves. So let's look at the tabernacle, and let's talk a little bit about the romanticism of the past. Last week, in Hebrews chapter 8, we talked about covenants. I'm going to give you a brief refresh because it connects to the tabernacle. But let's see what the author in Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Quick covenant refresh, and you can watch last week's sermon. You can watch the Bible Project video on covenants as well that we shared together last week. But a covenant refresh, there are five covenants in the Bible. Noah's covenant, which centers around the value of human life, that human life is valuable. In Abraham, the covenant that God plans to bless all of humanity through one family. The Mosaic, or the covenant to Moses and the Israelites, where God renews the covenant of valuing humanity through one family, and he blesses this family if they continue in their covenant with him. We have the Davidic covenant, where a king from this line will always rule over God's people. And then all throughout Hebrews, we are being taught the new covenant. The new covenant where the old covenants were fulfilled in Jesus, who offers us a new covenant through him that God would forgive sin, renew hearts, and provide an intimate relationship between God and humanity. And then Hebrews 9, 1 through 6, we'll skip through it pretty quickly. He gives a detailed depiction of the tabernacle, what it looked like, how it was responded to, how they practiced the covenant. And the tabernacle, while being this Old Testament tent where priests would make offerings and it would be a tent of meeting with God's presence, it also was an earthly representation of the covenant. It's not an accident that it is brought in, described, and built in the chapter following the Mosaic Covenant. 
God makes this covenant, and he says, now this building will represent that covenant, and it will be where you renew your covenant with me, and I renew my covenant with you. The tabernacle was designed to remind the people of their covenant and their history, sacrifices and blood, images of the Garden of Eden, a showbread, an incense. All of these were images to remind them. But what is interesting about him talking to the Hebrews about the tabernacle and not the temple is the tabernacle has not been present in Israel for a thousand years. Tabernacle, ancient history for the ancient Christians we are reading about. They didn't have a tabernacle. They didn't live through it. Their grandma's grandma, grandma didn't even live through the tabernacle. And even the true temple was gone 700 years ago. If you were an Israelite living in the time of Jesus, you would think, oh, the temple, the temple is where they worship. But they had a romanticized idea of the tabernacle because the temple had been corrupted. The temple existed, but then a non-Jewish ruler of the Roman party came in and kind of tried to make it his own and he did his own spin on it. And then you see all of these priests kind of doing it for the money and and taking advantage of the Israelites. So the temple had a kind of jaded view at this point. But so they would look back to the tabernacle, a very human thing to do. Right now, not great. Right now, I'm jaded. This is suffering. So what we do is we then take an image wherever we are grabbing it from history or from the past, and then we point to that and say, but that was when it was good. It's not great now, but then it was. The temple, it's kind of lost. It's not what it was, but the tabernacle, that was when our faith was great. And if you're a Jewish Christian being persecuted for worshiping Jesus and your life is being threatened, your your very livelihood is being lost by this decision, you could go and say, well, I don't want to be like the other corrupted Israelites now, but maybe I could just connect back to this old way of doing our faith and then I'll have it and it'll be better. It is a very human thing to think our older is better. The romanticism of the past. This is the mentality that's at play here. And I'll give you some examples. When we are struggling in the present, we often look to the past as an escape. When things aren't working, we look back. Go on a few bad dates, not really working, kind of painful. You begin to think, well, maybe I should call Carol. It wasn't that bad, was it? We had some good times. You see, Carol gave your dog up to a dog adoption and she stole your identity. And you're like, yeah, but she had great hair. It was pretty good. You think about getting frustrated with technology and social media and you're like, it's all terrible now. I could go back to the pioneer days and the romanticism of living in a log cabin. And I go, yeah, but I really like a flushing toilet. Like, I think that's pretty good. And I don't really want to churn butter myself for four hours to make toast. Oh, I got to make the bread? Oh. Hebrews continues this push. These ancient ways, you're trying to move away from the difficulty of your faith now. They're not what you think they are. He continues this, just not with the tabernacle, but with the atonement that takes part in the tabernacle. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. 
the author writes, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. You might read this passage of Hebrews and say to yourself, what? That's okay. He's talking about the tabernacle and that once a year, there was a ritual where the priests would make atonement or they would offer blood to cleanse the Israelites of their sins. And there was this whole process where they would take two goats and one would be the scapegoat. That's where we get it from. They would put all of the sins onto this one goat and release it into the desert. And they're like, it's all of our sins. Goodbye, sins. And the goat would run into the desert. Then they would go and cleanse the temple so that the high priest and the high priest only could meet with God on behalf of the Israelites. And there was a very real understanding that human brokenness Human frailty, or sin as we call it, results in death. Maybe the death of trust in a relationship. You see that when a lie is given or when trust is broken. The death of hope when something is corrupted and it's not quite the beauty of what it was. You see part of that die. In that very real and concrete sense, it said sin brings death. So only death can cleanse it. So they would kill an animal, sprinkle the blood onto the tabernacle to cleanse it, and then the priest would enter in to pray on behalf of the Israelites to make atonement for them. And then hopefully, God's righteousness would be satisfied for the next year, and then they could get through another year and they'd give little sacrifices in between. But this moment for the high priest was incredibly stressful. It's written about, and even in the apocryphal writings of Jewish priests during the 300 period of biblical silence, there's writings about how stressful this process became. That oftentimes all the other priests would be praying over the high priest before you, and like, good luck, man. I, I hope you come out alive. We love you. Meet with God and be safe, man. Be safe. He would go and he'd be praying the whole time. He'd be doing the sign of the cross even before Jesus came. He'd be praying about it. He's walking into there just hoping hoping that the blood has covered it enough that when his sinfulness encounters God's righteousness, he wouldn't be shot dead on the moment. And then when he comes out, there is this cathartic celebration. He comes out praying and he's sweaty and he comes out and they go, let's eat, man. You survived another year. Let's celebrate. And they would have a huge feast together celebrating one more year of the priest not dying in God's presence, one more year of the sins of the Israelites being paid for and being atoned for. One side thing that the author of Hebrews mentions here and that the Israelite priests did, is that they would also make atonement for sins that they might be unaware of. And I think this is an important aside for many of us. It's not the center point of the text, but I think requires a minute of our time. That they would not just make atonement for sins that were committed knowingly, but they'd make atonement for sins that maybe people were unaware of, weren't thinking about, but as Scripture says, were still accountable for. And there is a pattern throughout Scripture and in the Gospel that ignorance is not an excuse and doesn't absolve us of accountability. If that was the case, I would never want to learn anything new ever again. I don't want to learn it. I don't want to know it because then I'm accountable. Scripture says you are called to be growing and aware. 
Your eyes should be alert and looking around for the suffering of others. Your ears and your heart should be examined regularly, searching for where you are drifting and where you have made it about yourself and where you are selfish so that I can cleanse you. It is a modern Christian idea that God couldn't possibly hold us accountable for things we didn't know about or for things we didn't participate in or things that weren't our fault. And what Scripture says is you are accountable to search and to long and to be aware and to look for where my people are suffering, to look to where your heart has become corrupted, to search and see what I have called you to. Ignorance does not absolve us. That's my encouraging word for this morning. In Hebrews, he is then declaring... He's saying, enough with the romanticism of the past. I just laid out for you. This was a stressful thing for the priest. This atonement once a year, you're thinking of it in this beautiful glory. It was stressful. It was full of shame and guilt. They were hoping that God's righteousness wouldn't smite them at any moment of their existence. And it was this process of cleansing and bringing animals, traveling from a distance, coming to this man who would then stressfully try to make atonement, cook the right way, cleanse the right way, do all of the prayers the right way so that in one moment it all would go perfectly and they could breathe easy to then do it over again and over again. He says, what you're longing for is a cycle of shame and fear and hope. The hope, great, but you're back again to the shame and the fear. And he says, in a sense, you know why the past is so romantic. We'll see this in the next chapter of Hebrews. is because the present is hard, and it's hard to face the present. It's here, and it's real. Cancer is real, and it's here. Relationships are here, and they're real. And the hurt someone spoke over you is present and here in the now. The opportunities of where we need to lead and be disciplined in our own lives are here and they're real. But if I think back to the past, I can cope. It's a coping mechanism called the fading effect bias. The further something is in my memory, the more I can tweak it and turn it to be the thing I wanted it to be in the first place. And the reality is, if we think about the past in its truest form, oftentimes I'm just thinking about painful things over and over again. I'm thinking about good things, but the painful things are there too. I don't really want to keep doing that. So the good things become elevated more and more so that when I struggle, I look back. And now the Bible does tell us to remember, to remember God's goodness, to remember God's grace, to remember the covenants. We are literally, I'm teaching you of a letter from 2,000 years ago to learn from. And so history is important. But the key idea is that the past was not better. I need some of us in the room to hear that. The past was not better. It was different. The sins were different. The graces were different but it wasn't better. And we cannot avoid the current sufferings of the life and the community we are living in by disappearing into an idealized version of what was. And the author of Hebrews is telling these Christians, suffering through very real persecution, saying you cannot just disappear into the past of what was. It wasn't what you are remembering it to be. It was a cycle of sin and shame and fear. But what you have now is eternal life. 
What you have now is grace abundant. What you have now is atonement forever. The atonement, the offering of death to receive life. The author of Hebrews explains it in verses 13 through 15. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, if the blood of these animals could make us pure, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to the serving of the living God. He said before that the promises of the blood cleansed our physical. He's now even saying Jesus' blood doesn't even cleanse just the physical. It cleanses your mind and your heart, your emotions, your memories, your conscience, your regret. It cleanses all of it. He can purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We offer death to receive life. That's an Old Testament principle. We offer death to receive life. This is a... 2021 principle as well, in that when we break something, when we hurt someone, when we are asking for forgiveness, there is a mentality that comes along in a sense, the Shakespearean model of they need a pound of flesh, right? Um, They need a pound of my flesh and I have to demonstrate my brokenness. I have to earn forgiveness through the shedding of emotional guilt conscious blood. I have to make it up. I have to feel bad enough. I have to demonstrate it enough. And oftentimes when someone has hurt us, we want to see that it hurts them enough that they're recognizing it, right? Uh, That apology wasn't good enough. I want tears, real tears. Feel it for me. Write out what you did and prove it so that I will feel better. It's the same principle that the death of trust, we have to give more death. More shame, more guilt, more fear in order to receive that life back. That death, but what the author is saying is where we give shame to receive forgiveness, where we give death to receive life, where we give suffering to receive freedom, the new covenant says death has been conquered, full stop. Shame has been conquered, full stop. Freedom has been offered, full stop. You need to give no death from yourself. You need to give no shame of yourself. You need to not suffer in order to earn the forgiveness. It has been given, full stop, by Christ Jesus. His suffering, his death, his submission to the cross. The presence of God for a broken, sinful person is hard because righteousness exposes our imperfection. It's scary. To come into the presence of a righteous God, I feel like it's the most shining of mirrors. It's that gross fluorescent light that some restaurants have in the bathroom and you go in and you look in the mirror at yourself and you're like, that's what I look like. This is the worst lighting possible. 
to stand in the presence of a righteous God, we just see all of it. And the shame can drive us to insanity. But that God says, no, no, no. The new covenant, the new atonement, is the blood of Christ Jesus that covers you. And that when you look into the mirror of God's righteousness, you no longer see the ugliness of your sin and brokenness. You see the beauty of the blood of Jesus Christ covering you. And the Father sees the blood of Jesus Christ covering you. And you don't walk in with shame and fear. You walk in with confidence of a relationship restored by a perfect atoning offering given in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. And to say it another way, it means that our relationship no longer requires a reset button. The Israelites needed a reset button over and over again. I messed it up again, reset button. We failed again, reset button. We sacrificed our children to Moloch again, reset button. We built all these Asherah poles, reset button. We joined in with Egypt, reset button. I need a reset button again. And we can laugh at the ridiculous nature of that, but we live under the shadow of this mentality all the time. I grew up in church settings where I felt like I needed to come to the altar and be saved again every week. I hope this one sticks. Last week, I mean, I don't know, I, I made this and then I lied to my parents. And so I, I literally asked in a Sunday school class once, I said, if I was a Christian and I was praying all the time and I was worshiping all the time, I was reading my Bible all the time, I'm in a car accident. And in my car accident, I say a curse word and then I die. Heaven or hell? <laughs> and my Sunday school teacher said, totally misunderstood my question and said, well, I think even prayer, if we're obsessing over it, can disconnect. And I said to them like 12 years later, I go, I asked you a question 12 years ago and you skirted it. And they're like, oh my gosh, I did. And I was like, yeah, but that's okay. I was like, I know the answer now. It, and I'll tell you right now, if you're in a car accident and you curse and then you die, it, you are not in danger of the fires of hell because the blood of Jesus Christ covers us now and for forever. You put on Christ when you say, yes, you are my Lord and Savior. You have come and you have died for me and you conquered death through the resurrection and so I will follow you all the days of my life. Will you be my Savior? He says, yes, I got you. You're good. My blood will cover you. Now the author of Hebrews says, does that give us permission to act a fool? No. But it means when we do act a fool, we simply turn our eyes back to Jesus again and he says, I got you, bud. I got you. You're good. My blood covers you. The sacrifice of Jesus in the new atonement, not the atonement in the tabernacle, but the atonement of Christ Jesus' blood is once and for all. Requires no reset button. Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. Don't settle for the memory of faith that was once. Embrace the faith in Christ Jesus that is present here and now, is working in us here and now. And we're not going to think probably, many of us, although I do know some, to think wistfully back to the tabernacle. Let it go. But we do think back, oh, we do think back to maybe the faith of our grandparents 
or, or someone older we respect well, and we think back to that, and we think, wow, that, that faith, that life, that journey. We think back to that first maybe two weeks we came to Christ and how on fire we were and how excited we were. And we think back, we're like, boy, that was great. And I think as we reflect on that, the author of Hebrews would say to us, no, you have that now. Don't think about your grandma and her faith. Think about yours now. What are you doing with it? Christ is here now. The Spirit is moving now. People are suffering now. People are lost and in need of the love of God now. The presence of God is here in this room now. You can have it here in the present. And Jesus isn't just an earthly system, but he says he is also in heaven, seeing the Father face to face. This is the first time in all of Scripture that somebody is referenced as unrestricted face-to-face contact with the Father. It's here in Hebrews, is Christ Jesus. And what the author says is that face-to-face relationship Jesus is having, being fully known, allowing them to know you fully, no sin and shame, blocking that face-to-face contact, is also what Jesus wants each of us to have through him. This thing nobody had for all of creation, thousands of years of sin and shame and loss, he's saying, I'm giving it back. By my blood, you have this relationship again. And continuing, And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priests here on earth who enter the holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. Jesus crushes the reset button. It's done. The pain of sin and shame and loss and death is done. Your need to be afraid of the Father and his judgment for your sin is done. Your worriness of your own worthiness to be in church, to come to an altar, to pray and ask God to examine you because you're worried about if this area of my life is found out or this sin or what I watched or how I talked or where I behaved is done. Christ Jesus says you can now bring all of yourself, all of yourself before God, and you can receive all of myself to you by my spirit. It is a permanent cleansing. It is a proactive cleansing. It is a retroactive cleansing. It is an eternal cleansing that can never be undone. That is, as the author of Hebrews would say, that is why Jesus is so much better than anything else. And in verse 27, and just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, saying, when we die, we will face our maker and be judged for our sin. He says, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins because he already has, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. The Hebrew theology in the resurrection, that when we die, one day all of us will be resurrected. And as we face our creator, 
he will judge us for how we behaved according to these past covenants. To the Noah covenant, how did you treat other human beings? Did you value human life as sacred and value those people? Uh, I maybe I voted for that guy. I, I don't know. I don't know. In Abraham's covenant, were you a blessing to the rest of the world? As I spoke to you, were you a blessing to all? Did you make me known to all? You're like, I think I shared maybe with a hairdresser once. In Moses' covenant, did you follow all of the laws I gave you according to my righteousness? You say, well, this one definitely no. I can answer this one clearly. No, I did not. And then to David's, did you let me rule and reign over your life? I don't. But that. Christ Jesus goes before us, before the Father, and makes atonement on our behalf, sits at the right hand of the Father forever, and that his blood covers us so that one day when all is resurrected, when all stand before the Father, and he asks what we did according to the previous covenants, we can just look to Jesus standing at the right side. Jesus will extend his hand to us, put it on our shoulder, and say, I got you, bro. Look to me. And the Father will say, yeah. You did. You valued all. You loved all. Yeah, you followed all of my laws and regulations. Yeah, you made me known and loved all of humanity and creation. Yes, you submitted under my authority and then ruled and reigned. You and I and we did all of it because Christ has done all of it already. And we will one day stand before our maker and he will call us sons and daughters of the Most High because of the atonement of Christ Jesus, what he has done. Amen? I'm going to give us a moment this morning to just pray and to receive that atoning grace that Christ offers us. I want to give you an opportunity this morning just to bow your heads, close your eyes and bow your heads and just pray with me. If you're in the room today and you would say, um, I don't have that relationship with Jesus. I'm not confident about how God will one day judge me. I'm worried about my own sin and my choices. I want to give you a chance this morning with one prayer you put on Christ and you take a step of faith into that relationship. If you are already a follower of Jesus, use this as a moment of recommitment and appreciation for what Christ has done. God, in this moment, I recognize your son, Jesus. In this moment, I recognize my own sin. Those covenants, I couldn't keep them. I haven't kept them. The idea of that cycle of sin and shame and fear, yeah, I'm living in that. I want to be set free. I want to be covered by your blood. And so, Jesus, I believe that you were fully God, fully man. You came to this earth and put on flesh, that you fulfilled each and every expectation God had in those covenants. You fulfilled them, and then you offered me a new covenant whereby I put on your presence and power and forgiveness and blood from the atonement simply by believing in you. Jesus, you gave your life for me. You took on my sin and death on the cross. You died in my place. You were buried in the ground, and on the third day, you rose again, conquering sin, death, and shame forever. 
You gave your life for me, Jesus. Today, I commit in my life to follow you all the days of my life. Amen and amen. If you prayed that for the first time this morning, we would just love to pray with you and celebrate with you. But for all of us, I'm going to give us an invitation to stand and respond this morning. If you can stand wherever you are in the room. And we're going to, as the team leads us in one final song, we're going to open up this altar space. We believe that there is a work happening in this room. There's a work between God's deliverance and salvation. But there's also our work of accepting his work of taking that step into it. And that I do believe that the physical response sometimes for us, a step forward out of my chair, a kneeling moment at an altar, hands raised in song, singing out, that these are moments that we take on the person of Christ. These are moments we reach forward and we grab what he is offering to us. We say, yes, Jesus, I need you to work in me the way you have promised. And I need your blood and atonement. As the worship team sings, I'm going to invite you. The altar space is open and let us respond to the saving grace, the once and forever atoning work of Christ Jesus that he offers us this morning.